Revelation chapter 5, last book of your New Testament. We are looking at Jehovah's Witnesses and the doctrine of the Trinity. And there was a handout at the door. If you did not get it, um, try to grab it on the way out. Recommended reading is what is on there. I've got some books up here that you may want to take a peek at, like a book on systematic theology, which goes has a good section on the Trinity. There's a book by Robert Moray on the Trinity. This is an excellent book that was written by James White called The Forgotten Trinity, and you can pick up a copy of this pretty cheap. There's a nice pamphlet by Rose Publishing. All of these are available. Just go to christianbookdistributorscbd.com. You can get this, this little pamphlet. It's power-packed, just a lot of great stuff, very succinct. You can get that. And then there's a book by Robert Bowman Jr., Why You Should Believe in the Trinity, which is a refutation of a, uh, one of the Watchtower magazines that came out why should you believe in the Trinity was the title of it. And the Jehovah's Witnesses are constantly badgering on this idea that God is triune. The problem that um, they have is that they don't understand what we're saying. Most people who try to argue against the Trinity don't even have a proper definition of what we're saying. So I'll give you an example. Charles Taze Russell says, this is coming from the Watchtower, the doctrine in brief is that there are three gods in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. I'm quoting them. The Holy Spirit, they say, is not a person and is therefore not one of the gods of the Trinity. The Trinity doctrine was not conceived by Jesus or the early Christians. The obvious conclusion, therefore, is that Satan is the originator of the Trinity doctrine. This is straight from Jehovah's Witnesses. So when you say you believe in the Trinity, uh, witnesses who are reading Charles Taze Russell or the Watchtower Bible and Tract magazines that come out are getting the exact opposite. They're being told that you should not believe in the Trinity and they're actually saying it's satanic. I want you to notice in the quote that I just read, they're saying that they believe that we teach three gods. That's not what we teach. That is something known as tritheism or another way to say it is polytheism. Monotheism is the belief in one God. Mono, one, theism just simply means God. Polytheism is many gods. We do not hold to polytheism as Christians. We hold to monotheism. But we believe the one God of the Bible still reveals himself in three persons. And I will define what a person is and how that differs from our own definition of what we believe a person should be defined as. We'll talk about that. I'm going to give you a little church history tonight. I will tell you that many adversaries against the Trinity say the Trinity was a conception that was birthed out of the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. That is absolutely false. That's not what happened. The Trinity was being articulated much earlier by early church uh, fathers right at the end of the first century and into the second century. And I'll give you some of those quotes tonight. I can't be exhaustive, but anyone who wants a copy of my notes, I'm willing to give you a copy of my notes. And then I just want to take you, you know, our primary textbook is going to be the Bible. And let's just see what the Bible says. Does the Bible teach the Trinity? That's the real question, right? We have to let God reveal himself and then we have to worship him for who he is. Jesus said, the Father is seeking such worshipers to worship him in what? In spirit. And many theologians believe spirit there is lowercase. That's from our hearts, if you will. In spirit and in what? Truth. God wants to be worshiped in truth. When you come into a church building, it doesn't mean that you have to leave your brain at the door. God is glorified when you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God is an incredible subject to study. And by the way, all of you as Christians are in one sense theologians because anybody who studies the Bible automatically becomes a theologian. So it's important for you to understand what the Bible teaches about God. And obviously, as we are around the things of God, we wrestle with the Bible, we wrestle with concepts. We want to know what we believe, but as Christians, we want to know why we believe it. Don't you agree? You want to be able to defend, if you're hanging your, your eternity on a belief system, you better be right. Don't you agree? 
You, you ought to know what you believe and why you believe it. And if you're not sure why you believe what you believe, then check it out and go deeper. And I'm sure that's why you're here tonight. It's amazing that anybody shows up when an announcement says the, the, the topic is the Trinity. Because for most people, they go, ouch, it just always just makes my brain hurt just trying to understand what the Trinity is. Well, we're going to dig that out. I'm going to give you some definitions tonight. Before we go further, let's pray. Father, we are here tonight to worship you as you have told us, and we're not to edit you or make you, you know, what we want you to be. That's, that's really what, what idolatry is all about, is, is trying to make a God in our image instead of the God of the Bible who revealed himself and said, this is who I am. My ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. Lord, we, we want to worship you for who you say you are, and it is incumbent upon the church in every generation to hold true to biblical theology especially as it relates to the nature of God. We've got to have the, the right God. We can go wrong if we don't have the true God of the Bible. And Lord, this, these are not easy issues, especially as it relates to the Trinity. So we just ask that you'll give us understanding, give us insight and wisdom as we study your word, as we talk about these subjects. And we pray that you'll equip your people, uh, equip us further to, to be able to defend the God of the Bible and to give a reason for the hope that we have but always to do that with gentleness and respect. We love you, Lord. We lay this time at your feet. We pray you'll take it where you want it to go. In Jesus' holy name I pray, amen. amen. Now on Wednesday night, we were in the book of Revelation. And for those of you who are with us, this is a little review. But we saw one who was seated on the throne. He's described in Revelation 4 and 5 in refracted colors. Uh, there's an emerald rainbow around the throne. There's Sardis and something like a, a crystal flowing from the throne. And we see that same description in the book of Exodus when the, those who are with Moses see the God of Israel. And in Revelation 5, something incredible happens. A universal search takes place for one who can open the scroll, break its seals, and look into it. And all of a sudden, John is told in, in verse 5, Revelation 5, to stop weeping because one has been found. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. We know that that's Jesus. He's the root of David, and he's overcome. He's our redeemer. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures, these cool, angelic creatures around the throne, and the elders, maybe either uh, humans who are now in heaven or ancients or uh, some believe angels, I saw a lamb. I'm, I'm told it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, but John says, then I saw a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns. Seven is the number of completion or perfection. The Bible here is using what's called theanthropy. Uh, the <laughs> My brain has is, is, is got to kick in the gear right now. Anthropomorphic terminology. Anthropomorphic terminology is trying to use human terms to describe spiritual realities. The book of Revelation is using symbolic language in many cases to depict God. It's using human terms to try to show us who God is. So the scrolls in his right hand and so forth, but God is spirit. And so notice this, this lamb is described, he's as if slain, but he's standing, so he's alive. Could be a picture of the resurrection. He has seven horns. Horns speaks of uh, power in the Bible or strength. Complete strength, that, that would be omnipotence. Seven eyes, which speaks of all knowingness, that is omniscience, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the, the earth. And he came and he took out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He took the scroll out of his hand. And when he had taken the book or the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before who? The lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, they sing this new song and there's worship upon worship. But here's the thing I wanted you to see tonight as we just get going. The book of Revelation shows the Son of God, God the Son. There's no doubt. Everybody agrees this is the Son of God being worshipped right before the Father by angels in the presence of the Father. The Father says in Hebrews 1, let all of the angels of God do what? Worship him. Yet the Bible says that God says nothing else receives worship except him. Angels refuse worship. In the book of Acts, they want to uh, worship Paul and one of the missionaries that's with him. And they say, don't worship us. Worship belongs to God alone. Yet before the throne, in the presence of the Father, with no rebuke, no correction, Praise is going up to the Lamb. 
He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is God in human flesh. He is eternal. He is God. And he has always been God. God can't stop being God. He cannot be one-third omnipotent or one-third omniscient. He either is God or he is not. And Jesus is worshiped as God. And Isaiah 42, 8 says that God will not share his glory with another. Therefore, Jesus Christ must be God. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses say something like this. These are direct quotes. This is Charles Taze Russell, the founder on the Trinity. He says, he says, this view of the Trinity suited well the dark ages it helped to produce. Studies in the Scripture, volume 5, page 166. This theory is as unscriptural as it is unreasonable, close quote. I go on with quotes from Russell. If it were not for the fact that Trinitarian nonsense was drilled into us from our earliest infancy and the fact that it is so soberly taught in theological seminaries by gray-haired professors, nobody would give it a moment's serious consideration, close quote. And then finally, how the great adversary Satan ever succeeded in foisting it, the triune Godhead upon the Lord's people, to bewilder and mystify them and render the word of God of none effect is the real mystery, close quote. These are all from his studies in the scriptures. When people hear a church talking about Jehovah's Witnesses, and by the way, somebody held me, handed me a pamphlet. They're having a big to-do, something at a big conference center. They are very active, I'm sure you've noticed. And here's what I want to say. The attack came from them first. Joseph Smith, Charles Taze Russell, and others began to attack the biblical doctrine of God. The Jehovah's Witnesses deny the deity of Christ, salvation by grace alone, the Trinity, the bodily resurrection. They deny every essential of the historic Christian faith. We're not even talking about, you know, debatable matters or what we would put in peripherals or non-essentials. We're talking about essential doctrine like who is God and how is one saved. They deny every essential of the historic Christian faith. And by the way, the bomb was first sent by them to the church. And then the church responded. In fact, the area where Charles Taze Russell was quote-unquote ministering, there was a pastor who took up arms against him, to put it in the language of military fight, and ended up in court against Charles Taze Russell. And Charles Taze Russell was trying to sue him for slander. Russell was claiming that he was, you know, ordained by a presbytery, that he knew the original languages, but he did not know his Bible very well. He wasn't trained well in theology. And so many people followed Charles Taze Russell, but he didn't even understand the doctrine historically of the Trinity, and many people don't. So a lot of people who have issues with the Trinity and are mystified by it and say they don't understand it, turn to Matthew 28, usually are arguing against a definition that we don't even hold. We do not hold that the Bible is teaching three separate gods. We hold that the Bible teaches one God. Now, go to Matthew 28. I'll show you one place where Jesus affirms this. This is the last verses of the book of Matthew. Chapter 28, look at verse uh, 18. As Jesus has risen from the dead, he goes up to the disciples. He says, all authority, 28, 18, Matthew, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name, that is the, the name is singular here, but then there are three persons laid out before us. We are to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. B.B. Warfield comments. He says, he could not have been understood otherwise than as substituting the name Jehovah or Yahweh this other name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. So what Warfield is saying is, do you see what Jesus is doing? The founder of the Christian religion is basically saying, when you baptize, the name of Yahweh could be described as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The name is singular. So think of the name. When the Jews think of the name, they think of Yashem or Hashem. They think of the name. They wouldn't even often pronounce the name. They took the vowels out of the name. Yahweh, or some people believe Jehovah. But the name here is defined as Father, Son, and the older translations have, say Holy Ghost, but it's probably better rendered Holy Spirit. He says, and this could not possibly have meant to his disciples anything else 
other than that Jehovah was now to be known by the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The only alternative would have been that for the community which he was founding, Jesus was supplanting Jehovah by a new God. And this alternative is no less than monstrous. We are not witnessing here the birth of the doctrine of the Trinity. That is presupposed. What we are witnessing is the authoritative announcement of the Trinity as the God of Christianity by its founder. Close quote. Everybody with me? The name of God, how we baptize now, is in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity comes directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. True worship must worship God as he exists, not as we wish him to be. The Trinity is the highest revelation that God has made of himself. Jonathan Edwards comments. He says, God has appeared glorious to me on account of the Trinity. It has made me have exalting thoughts of God that he subsists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Close quote. This is James White commenting. He says, the Trinity is a truth that tests our dedication to the principle that God is smarter than we are. As strange as that may sound, I truly believe that in most instances where a religious group denies the Trinity, the reason can be traced back to the founder's unwillingness to admit the simple reality that God is bigger than we can ever imagine. That is really what Christians have always meant when they use the term mystery of the Trinity. The term has never meant that the Trinity is an inherently irrational thing. Instead, it simply means that we realize that God is completely unique in the way he exists. And there are elements of his being that are simply beyond our meager mental capacity to comprehend, close quote. Here's an example. Can you explain rationally so someone can understand it, the eternality of God, that God has no beginning and no end? Can you put it up on a chalkboard right now to satisfy all the minds in the city of Corona or Norco? I will tell you, no, we don't really get it. How can God be eternal? How can he be outside of time? How about this one? Can you explain how the God of the Bible spoke the entire universe into existence by the word of his power? Can you explain that? You see, there are doctrines about God that we simply have to say his being, his very nature, though we can understand things about him, are still so high that our puny minds can't always wrap our arms around it. And that's okay. If God has defined himself as triune, that is how we should worship, worship him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God revealing himself in three persons. Now the Bible teaches this over and over again. And I'm gonna show you just quickly the idea of monotheism. If you're a note taker, I'm just going through some basic stuff. Number one, we're gonna talk about how the Bible teaches that there is one God, one God. And I'm gonna to have to move rapidly, but I'm gonna take you to the book of Isaiah for a second. Isaiah in your Old Testament. Isaiah chapters 40 through 48 are God putting the false gods of the uh, surrounding peoples on trial. And uh, what he's doing is basically saying, can you predict the future? Can you tell us what's going to happen? Uh, what, what can you actually do to show us that you are God? So uh, go to Isaiah 43 and look at verse 10. Isaiah 43, 10. A lot of you are familiar with these passages, so I'm going to touch on them and then we'll, we'll move on to some other things. This is what you may call the trial of the false gods or God's celestial cross-examination of the false gods. Look at 43, 10. Isaiah. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant uh, whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me. I want you to know who I am and believe in me. And understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. God is calling the nation of Israel to witness to his very nature. He is saying, you are going to affirm my identity, my very being. I, even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Verse 12. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from what? From eternity, I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? Psalm 90, verse 2 is a good verse to put in here. From everlasting to everlasting, you 
our God. God has always been and always will be what he is. He made time. He is the Aleph Tav in Hebrew. He is the Alpha and Omega in Greek. He is the A to Z in English. He is the beginning. He is the middle. And he is the end. He will never cease to be God. Therefore, if Jesus is God and if the Holy Spirit is God, they always were God. You cannot become the God of the Bible. You either are or you aren't. Right? You're either in that category or you're not. Go to Isaiah 44, look at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer. Seems to be speaking of two persons here, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. 44, 6. And there is what? No God beside me. And who is like me? Let him proclaim it and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. Let them declare to them the things that are coming. If these false gods are God, let them tell us the future. Let them prophesy and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any rock I know, says the God of the Bible, of none? The Hebrew Shema, when the children of Israel uh, go down to chapter 44, verse 24, would pray in the morning. They would pray, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? The Lord is one. The Lord is one. This was the prayer that was prayed by the children of Israel over and over again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your might. Deuteronomy uh, 4, 35 through 39 is another one to write down. I'll read verse 39. It says, Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven and above and on the earth. Below there is no other. On to 44, 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am the maker of how many? Of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Only God did this. Not some second created lesser deity like the Jehovah's Witnesses try to teach. Causing the omens of boasters to fail. How do you like that? Making fools out of diviners. Causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness. On and on it goes. I, for the sake of time, just skip ahead to Isaiah 46. Look, look at verses 9 and 10. 46, 9 and 10 says... Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. The Bible says, and I could give you many more verses on this, but there is one God, only one God. And so we cannot accept the idea of a definition of polytheism, many gods. We cannot accept someone trying to tell us that we believe in three gods. We do not. The Bible affirms just one God, monotheism. So that's the foundation from which we start. Now, if you flip over to the New Testament, look at 1 Corinthians 8. Sometimes people say, okay, maybe that's true, but the Bible seems to indicate that there's more than one God. For example, this verse 1 Corinthians 8, look at verse 4, says these words. It says, Therefore, concerning the, the eating of things sacrificed to idols, 1 Corinthians 8, 4, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, 1 Corinthians 8, 5, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. The Bible does indicate there are false gods. They are not true gods. They are false by category. They do not have the nature of the God of the Bible. They are idols. The Ten Commandments starts this way. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other, what? Gods before me. When the God of the Bible says there are other gods, he's not saying they're on par with him. He's saying they're idols. 
He's saying they are false gods. The acknowledgement of other gods with a small g is not the acknowledgement that there's some council in the, of the gods or some pantheon of gods somewhere up in yonder heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible acknowledges false gods. You can make a god out of anything. What was the biggest problem of Israel as they went into the promised land and tried to conquer it? Being somehow intoxicated by what? The false gods of the nations. And so this is what happens in the world. You know, the majority of the world, if you looked at the ancient world, there were not a bunch of atheists around. The problem with the ancient world was what they actually believed about the gods that they would trust in or goddesses as it were. There weren't atheists who believe in evolution. They just had the wrong god. And if you have the wrong god, you can be wrong enough to what? To lose your soul. You've got to have the right God. Sincerity is just not enough, you guys. Because the devil is called the God of what? This world. Is he a true God? No, but what is, what is he in? He's in the realm of deception. This is where the enemy likes to fight. Jeremiah 10.10 says, but the Lord is the true God. There's only one true God. Go to John 17 for, uh, for a second. John 17, just a few pages back. Jesus says these words, this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God. Jeremiah 10.10 says, the Lord is the true God. John 17.3, I'm moving fast, I'm sorry, but if you're missing anything, you can go back. This will be on the website. John 17.3 says, this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Now, some people look at John 17.3 and actually say, well, John 17, 3 may be teaching that Jesus is not the true God. Well, how would we come to that conclusion? Because Jesus is praying to his Father and he calls his Father the only true God. But when Jesus addresses his Father, we have to understand, he is addressing God in toto, we would say, or in the totality of the triuneness of God. By saying you are the only true God, Jesus is not denying his deity. He is affirming the triunity of God. When the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 8 that Jesus Christ is the only Lord, does that mean that the Father's not the Lord? Of course not. What this is simply teaching is that eternal life is to know the one true God who reveals himself in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, John's gospel is picking up a lot of the themes that are, rent, that are shared in 1 John. 1 John 2.23, for example, says, if you don't have the Son, you don't have what? You don't have the Father. You can't have one without the other. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, what? Comes to the Father except through me. The Trinity is one God revealed in three persons, and you cannot know God unless you come His way to the Father through the Son in the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Now here's a definition, and I do want to give you a definition of the Trinity. Uh, I will give it to you a couple of different times. I've got a few of them here, and then I'm going to show you some, some stuff on the screen that may be helpful to you. So let's do this first. Here's a definition from Walter Martin. Within the nature of the one true God, there simultaneously exists three eternal persons, namely God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three persons are co-equal in all the attributes of the divine nature. Uh, you can go back and get this, but let me give you another definition from James White. Within the one being that is God, there exist eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let me see if I can get this to work. So here we go. This has been known as the Trinitarian Triangle. I want you to see that it is revealing to us God in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice that in the, the sides of the triangle, the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. But all three are God. They are all God, but they are distinct Here's an example. When the Mount of Transfiguration happens in Matthew 17 and there's a voice in the heavens that says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Jesus is not throwing his voice. 
He is not a ventriloquist. The father is actually saying, that's my son and I love him. So there is a distinction between the father and the son. When Jesus' baptism happens and the heavens open and the Holy Spirit comes down upon Jesus like a dove, you have the Father, the Son, and what? The Holy Spirit. And the heavens speak again. The Father speaks. This is my beloved Son in whom I am what? Well pleased. Scholars like to say, theologians like to say, there's a subject-object distinction between the persons of the Trinity. That is, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit. Uh, there are verses, for example, in the book of John that says uh, the Father loves the Son. These are interpersonal terms. The Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Son. These are relational terms. So when you look at the Trinity, and I know this is going to make a little bit of your, some of your heads already hurt, it is still one God in three persons. Now, when we use the term person, we associate baggage with it because when we think of a person, we think of spatial terms. We say, that is a person. But when the Bible is using the idea or the concept of personhood is explained here, let me just give you some of the things on the screen. They are called persons, the three persons of the Trinity, because they relate to one another in personal ways. The word person is sometimes uh, defined as persona. I heard Robert Moray, Dr. Moray say, one way to think about the Trinity is three centers of consciousness in one being. Three centers of consciousness in one being. Or, more simply, one what and three who's. Everybody with me? You're saying no. <laughs> Pastor Michael, no. I'm going to take some ibuprofen. One what and three who's. They are distinct from one another, yet they are all God and have always been God. Notice the second thing on the slide. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The word Trinity is used to explain the eternal relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These are relational terms. St. Patrick in AD 432 is believed to have used the shamrock as a way of illustrating the Trinity. Uh, Notice that there's, it's one and yet three. But I will tell you this, that all analogies that we will try to use, some of the weakest ones have been the people, Sunday school teachers have tried to use an egg. They've said the Trinity is kind of like an egg. You have the shell, the yolk, and the white gooey stuff. Uh, may I suggest that the egg is not the best illustration for the God who made the universe? Others have tried to use the triple point of water. In a test tube, you can put water at a certain temperature where it freezes at the bottom, liquefies in the middle, and puffs steam out the top. It's called the triple point of water. Some have said that if H2O can be three things at one time, then God can be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit simultaneously. But then others say, ah, but be careful because when you say something like that and use an illustration like that, you're bordering on modalism. Some of you say, moda who? <laughs> Modalism is, is a teaching and it's a heresy that God changes modes. So one moment God becomes the Father, another moment he becomes the Son, then he's the Holy Spirit, and he simply changes modes like an actor in a Greek drama changes masks. So one minute he, he's like the Father, then a minute, another minute he's like the Son, but that is not what the Bible teaches. They are simultaneously exist in three eternal persons distinct from one another and yet God. And this is why when we look at the nature of God, we just have to bow to what the Bible says. The Bible teaches one God yet in three persons. Are three persons called God in the Bible? Would you all say that you've come across the fact that God the Father is called God the Father in your Bible? Let me just show you one place. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. And then I'll give you some corresponding verses to just buttress this. But I don't think anybody has a problem with this idea. But let's just look at 1. 2 Peter 1. Look at verse 16. Towards the back of your New Testament. 2 Peter 1. Look at verse 16. Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised tales 
when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 2 Peter 1.17. For when he received honor and glory from who? God the Father. Such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Notice, just underscore there, God the Father. We know that the Father is called God. Would we all also say that the Bible teaches that Jesus is God? Well, we've done a lot of teaching on the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just recently, I took you through Colossians 1, a great passage about the deity of Jesus Christ. We've looked at John 1. We've looked at Colossians 1. We've looked at Hebrews 1. We've looked at Revelation 1. We've looked at Romans 1. We've looked at passages in John that clearly say that Jesus is God. We've seen him forgive sins, know the thoughts of people, receive worship. These are all signs that he is God. But here's something quite interesting that I wanted to tackle tonight because I don't think it's addressed quite often or very often at all. And it's this. Is the Holy Spirit God? And if so, does the Bible teach that he's God? And does it teach his personality? The Jehovah's Witnesses, and that's our subject matter for tonight, they teach that the Holy Spirit is God's active force, something similar to electricity. They say that the Holy Spirit is not a person as we've defined a person as part of the Trinity. They say he is simply the force of God. Well, let's see what the Bible says about this. Uh, turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians 3 and look at verses 16 and 17. 2 Corinthians 3, we're going to jump all around the place and I'm just going to try to give you as much as I can in a very limited amount of time. Oh, this is hard, but here we go. 2 Corinthians 3, look at verse 16. It says, whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? There is liberty. The Lord here refers to the Lord in the Old Testament verse of Exodus 34, 34. Paul just quoted it in the previous verse, in verse 16. And he says, the Lord is what? Is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. Now in the book of Acts, and we'll spend a little time here in the book of Acts, the Jehovah's Witnesses say that the Spirit of God, go to Acts 5, is just God's active force. And so he doesn't have any personality. He's something like electricity. Look at Acts 5, verse 1. We have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They lie about land that they've sold. They hold back some of the proceeds. And Peter says these words to them. He says, Peter says to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to who? To the Holy Spirit. Can you lie to electricity? Can you lie to a force that doesn't have personhood? Can you lie to your lamp? <laughs> Can you lie to a light bulb? Can you lie to an impressive streak of lightning in the sky and tell a big whopper to a lightning strike? Oh, I pulled it over on old lightning today. Ah, <laughs> uh, no. You can only lie to something that has personality. And then notice what he says. He says, end of verse four, you have not lied to men, but to who? But to God. Look at Acts 5.32. Does the Holy Spirit have personality? Acts 5.32. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The Holy Spirit becomes a witness of things. Look at Acts 7.51. Flipping just in passages in the book of Acts. The, Acts. the book of Acts could be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts 7.51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are always resisting who? You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts 8.29. The story of Philip. The Spirit said to Philip, Acts 8.29, Go and join this chariot. When's the last time an active force spoke? and directed people to do things in ministry. Go up to that chariot, says the Holy Spirit. Hmm, that seems to indicate personality, would you agree? He's sending people out. Acts 13, take a look. Acts 13, look at verse two. The Holy Spirit said, 
Now he speaks. I'm not sure when the last time a lightning strike or a light bulb spoke, but if your light bulb is speaking, you may have issues. You may want to have somebody come over and pray over your house. But anyway, the Holy Spirit said, Acts 13, 2, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which, what? I have called them. Look at verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Look at Acts 20. Acts 20. Just a few more. And I'm sure you're getting the point, but just a few more just to kind of cement the argument. Because it seems to me that sometimes we debate Jehovah's Witnesses over the deity of Christ, and we should. But we don't talk about the personality of the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts 20, 28. To the Ephesian elders, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. When you become an overseer, who puts you in that spot? The Holy Spirit. And then finally, the, the last chapter of the book of Acts, Acts 28, look at verse 25. Acts 28, 25 says these words. He says, when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. And then he goes on with a quotation. In the end times in Mark 13, Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to speak for the Holy Spirit will tell you what you ought to speak. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. How do you grieve an impersonal force? You can only grieve somebody that has personality. Look at Ephesians 4.30. He can be quenched, 1 Thessalonians 5. He can be sinned against. In fact, one of the serious sins in the New Testament that keeps some people up at night is called the blasphemy of the what? Of the Holy Spirit. How do you blaspheme an impersonal force? And Jesus says the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a sin that won't be forgiven in this life or in the life to come. Now, don't get nervous. I don't think any of us have committed that. I think that was the uh, first century Pharisees and Sadducees attributing the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' healing ministry and so forth to Beelzebub, the prince of demons. But the Holy Spirit can be blasphemed. Everybody with me? To blaspheme the Spirit is to blaspheme God. To lie to the Spirit is to lie to God. To grieve the Spirit is to grieve God. The Spirit lives where? As a Christian, where does he live? Inside of you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In fact, theologians, this gets a little heavy, but theologians say that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all live in you, but by virtue of the power of the Holy Spirit. How does that one work? I don't know. I don't know exactly because the, the Bible says Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and yet he says anyone who opens their heart towards him, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwell in them. Wow. The Holy Spirit is involved in creation. He's hovering or brooding over the waters and then God says, let there be light. We could go on and on. Everybody with me? The Father's God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. When you read your Bible, if the three persons are called God and the Bible teaches that there's one God, you come to the inescapable conclusion that the three persons are the one God. Let's go back if I can get us back there. So if you can get me back there, Terry, to that slide, the is not. And so you come to the inescapable conclusion that the three persons of the Trinity are the one God. You say, what? But that illustration doesn't completely satisfy me. That's okay. Remember, we have finite minds trying to understand what? Infinite concepts. What will God be like when we see him face to face? I don't know, but I think it's going to be pretty cool. See, sometimes people have this idea that the father is some grandfatherly person up in yonder heavens with a long white beard sitting at a desk. Uh-uh. Our God, the Bible says, is a consuming fire. And he reveals himself in three persons, namely God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is what the Bible teaches over and over and over again. Now, I did mention to you, uh, and we're going to have to move quickly, that I would tell you about some church history. What did the early church believe about the nature of God? Because there are some people who tell us that the Trinity doctrine was a doctrine that was produced at the Council of Nicaea. Let me explain. 
In 325 AD, as uh, Constantine kind of calmed things down, the persecution of the Christian church was beginning to wane. There was a man named Arius of Alexandria. He lived in an area of Alexandria, Egypt, and he had a bishop. The bishop over him was teaching the historic view of Christ. Arius began to say, I don't agree with you. I believe there was a time when Christ was not. I believe, said Arius, and he was kind of a, a teacher and you know, a bishop in the area or a priest in the area. I believe that Jesus is a created being. And so 300 church leaders assembled for one of the greatest councils in church history. It happened in the month of, I believe, in June of 325 A.D. And what they did is they tried to deal with this idea of the Arian heresy coming from a man named Arius of Alexandria. And what Arius basically taught was that Jesus was a second lesser God. He was deity but he was a created being. Maybe made a long, long time ago, but he was created by God the Father and then everything else was created. So Arius said there was a time when Christ was not and the response from the church was, wrong. Jesus is eternal. He has always been. So the Trinity in rapid fire was articulated by Clement, the bishop of Rome, third bishop of Rome in AD 96. That's the end of the first century right after the book of Revelation was written. It's articulated in baptismal um, uh, wording in the Didache, written between AD 90 and 100. It's articulated by Ignatius, who uh, talks about the Father and the Son. He calls Jesus Christ our God, Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, AD 90. It's articulated by Polycarp. You're, many of you are familiar with Polycarp. He says, we await the one who is above every season, the eternal, the invisible, the one who for our sake became visible, the untouched, the impassable, who for our sake suffered, who endured every way for our sake. Ignatius calls Jesus Christ God, one called Athenagoras, AD 177, philosopher and apologist, articulates the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One named Theophilus, the sixth bishop of Antioch, A.D. 168, articulates the Trinity. One named Theophilus articulates the Trinity. Justin Martyr, A.D. 155, speaks of the Trinity. Irenaeus, the bishop of Lyons, A.D. 180, says these words. Now the church received from the apostles and their disciples its faith in one God and the Father Almighty who made heaven and earth and the seas and all that is in them and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was made flesh for our salvation and the Holy Spirit, who through the prophets proclaimed the dispensations of God, close quote. Articulated by Tertullian in 197 AD. I'm giving you these dates because they're long before the Council of Nicaea. The early church from the founder of the church, Jesus, from the Old and New Testament and into the early church, what we call the earliest apostolic writings right after the New Testament, all affirm the doctrine of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Now I had to go fast because I wanted to allow a little time for your questions. <laughs> Everybody ready? All right, here we go. Um, how many JWs will go to heaven? 144,000. How are they chosen or selected? Well, the 144,000 is called the anointed class, and uh, they, they put a cap on that number because of a misunderstanding from the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation doesn't say it's 144 Jehovah's Witnesses. What does it say? It's 144,000 Jews from 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. So basically, they were early Jehovah's Witnesses who uh, lived at a certain time. They were kind of, the time was kind of capped by the second president of Jehovah's Witnesses, and they're the only ones who are born again, who go to heaven when they die. They were the only ones who could take their form of communion when it happened, and they've all died off. And so they're pretty much gone. It's a total misunderstanding anyway, but they think the 144,000 are the only ones who go immediately into heaven. Everybody else goes into a soul sleep in Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that when you die, you go into a soul sleep, and the only way that you can go into the paradise earth 
is if Jehovah remembers you for all your good works and resurrects you. If he doesn't, he annihilates you on the spot and you cease to exist. And by the way, in Jehovah's Witness doctrine, if you go into the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand year reign, if you're lucky enough to make it, you've done enough good things and they don't know if they'll even wake up from this so-called soul sleep. Then if, you're, if you do something wrong in the millennial reign of Christ, God can annihilate you on the spot. Sound like a peaceful uh, plan for the future? Sound like it gives you great confidence and hope? The average Jehovah's Witness at your door has no hope. They could be doing it for 50 years. If you ask them, do you know that you're going to end up in paradise? They'll say, I hope so. I hope I've done enough good things. You ask them, well, what if you sin? What if you make a mistake? Then I hope that I can make amends for it. And I hope that I'll be okay. It's all based upon works. Jehovah's Witnesses are making great inroads with the black and Mexican communities. And in your opinion, what is the Christian church doing wrong? What can we do differently to introduce Jesus to them? Look, they do more for a lie than most Christians are willing to do for the truth. Just to be quite blunt, they're very active. Now, they are active because they have to be. They go to your door not because they're concerned about your salvation. Look, I, I'm, gonna, I'm not making sweeping judgments, but they go to your door because they have to. This is something that's required of them to be in good standing. So we have to be willing to talk to them. We have to be equipped. That's why you're here tonight, right? So that you can reach them. They make inroads into these communities because sometimes it's, um, they, they target certain groups. And we have, you know, Vicky's here. Uh, we just talked before the service started. She was in Jehovah's Witnesses for 18 years. And she, you know, she regrets that time. But I even told her tonight that God still is going to use it to help her be more effective uh, for God. And I know there's others that come to these and they are former witnesses. Uh, these scriptures are so very clear. How do the JWs explain away these scriptures? Well, they often don't run into somebody who actually can give them the scriptures. Have you ever spent time at your door going through methodically scriptures like I just did with a Jehovah's Witness? I mean, the average Christian pulls down the blinds and doesn't want to talk to them. Doesn't want to share you know, what they know about the Bible. Most Jehovah's Witnesses have never even had a Christian say, share their testimony with a Jehovah's Witness and how they were converted and born again to a living hope. Most Christians say, oh, you're one of those, oh. You know, and, and it's a negative reaction. So you, you've got to try to love them and reason with them and they will talk to you from the Bible. Number four, why are we told not to use the Holy Spirit's name in vain why not Jesus Christ or God in vain? Good question. And I think it's because Jesus was saying, if you blaspheme me, I'm here on the planet, it's one thing. But if you attribute the work of the Holy Spirit, the power of God to the devil, that's unpardonable. I don't know all the reasons for it, but it's, it's, they knew better and they were still attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil. Do Jehovah's don't Jehovah's Witnesses use a different version of the Bible? They do. They have what's called the New World Translation. And they haven't changed all the pertinent passages, but passages that do teach the deity of Jesus Christ, they've toyed with them. They've changed them. They've uh, fudged with them. And they've played a dangerous game because God said, don't tamper with my word. Don't try to redefine me. If I was carrying a picture of a family member around and I, I said to you, uh, this is my beautiful wife. We've been married for 27 years. Isn't she pretty? Let me tell you, this is her favorite color. This is her favorite ice cream. And you said to me, oh, no, that's not. She actually doesn't like that color. Her favorite ice cream is this. And actually, she wasn't born in Japan. She was born in Kentucky. <laughs> I would say to you, you're not talking about the same person. I've been married to her a long time. I know a lot of stuff about her. This is my wife. If someone tried to redefine your wife, would you be a little upset, gentlemen? Would you say, who are you to try to redefine my wife? And yet people do that with God. And the, the so-called scholars who translated the New World Translation, by the way, we don't know their names because they said they reserved their names for humility purposes. So anyway, uh, there you go. How does Jesus, as part of the Trinity, take human form while maintaining his spiritual deity while maintaining deity. So here, here's the idea. How can Jesus still be God if he became a man? When the incarnation happened, it wasn't a subtraction of deity. It was the addition of humanity. Jesus never stopped being God. God can't stop being who he is. But he veiled 
his glory in humanity. Philippians 2 is what teaches this. Here's an example. And this is maybe a weak one, but this will get the point across. If you're used to seeing Pastor Michael dressed a certain way, and some of you have said this to me before, if I, if I have shorts, flip-flops on, and a hat, a baseball hat and a jersey on, some of you would say, I didn't even recognize that it was you, Pastor Michael. You're dressed differently today. Now, my dress doesn't change who I am. I'm still Michael Lance. Everybody agree? Hopefully, <laughs> right? Jesus put on the clothing of humanity while never ceasing to be God. Okay, this is an illustration only, but here's the, the, the essence of Jesus never changed. He did not subtract deity. He added on humanity. All right, that's the simple answer to that one. Number seven, who is best to pray to? Father, Son, or Holy Spirit? You pray to the Father uh, in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, although there are instances in the Bible when people pray directly to Jesus. I have no issues with that, but the normal mode is pray to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, number eight, how do JWs think of the Holy Spirit? If they don't consider him God, they will not call him the Holy Spirit. They call him Holy Spirit without the the. Why? They leave the the out because they don't want to give him personality. So they don't say the Holy Spirit. They say Holy Spirit, and they just simply mean power. And so they, they misunderstand who he is. Um, how do JWs, number nine, we only have 11 questions, we're at nine. How do JWs think of the Holy Spirit if they don't consider him God? They simply believe that he is God's active force and that's how they uh, differentiate it. Number 10 is a long question. I'll come back to that. Number 11. So if they don't believe in the Trinity, how do they worship God? Do they believe the Holy Spirit is among them? Well, they, they would hold that God's power is manifest by the Holy Spirit. So they would say that his power could be among them, but they only worship Jehovah. Jehovah, 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 which is the wrong name anyway. The closest that theologians say that we can get to the name of God is Yahweh. Y-H-W-H, the vowels are up for some debate. Or Yahweh, not Jehovah. That's a mixture of the word for Lord in Hebrew and the word for God. It's not the right name to begin with. And so um, this is what they do. They make a big deal out of this that it's only Jehovah. And finally, when a man and a, and a woman marry, the Bible declares that they become one. Is it out of line to think that this line of thinking could be used with the Trinity and that they are in fact three separate entities, but that they are united and appear as uh, one, because of the nature of their relationship. Similarly, when a king has a son, he inherits all power and authority that the king has. People bow down and worship the son because he is a representation of the king. How could this idea uh, to the relationship of the Trinity? I will tell you this. All analogies at some point break down because we are trying to use human illustrations to illustrate the God who is so majestic he spoke the universe into existence and he's eternal. So I would say we have to be careful with all illustrations. God is one, yet three. Three and one, one and three. Bow to his majesty. <laughs> That's what I would say. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, blessed Trinity. Amen. Father, we are so thankful for this, these nights when we can go through the word of God and uh, study to show ourselves approved and you are such a majestic uh, being, it would be hard for us to really uh, be able to, to give an illustration that would suffice. We're gonna let you define who you are. And you said you are one God, and yet we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we're gonna worship you for who you say you are. We're not gonna try to edit you or redefine you. That would be very dangerous. We're, letting, we're going to let you define yourself and worship you for who you are. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I know this is a deep subject, Lord, and I know tonight we've had to work a little extra hard to use our minds, but you've told us to love you with all that we are, our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I pray that the coming generation will be able to defend the biblical doctrines, that they will take the mantle and run with it and be able to know the original languages, know church history, and know their Bibles and be able to reason 
from the scriptures so that people can have hope. Lord, we're doing this tonight, not that we can win an argument, but that we can win souls. We're doing these nights so that we can share the good news of the God of the Bible, that he so loved us, that he became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. And I pray that this has moved people in the direction where they will understand you better, Lord. And I pray that we'll be more equipped to share the good news of the hope that we have in the God of the Bible. We pray that in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.